First Peter chapter four. Entitled this Joy in the Journey. As we uh, go through life, there are many times in our, our lives where it's maybe hard to find joy. There's moments where it's difficult and it's hard because of life circumstances, because of things that have happened or struggles that we face. But yet we are, we are called to a different perspective in our lives. And so Peter, as he talks here, and he's, he's starting to wrap up the, the book and moving toward a conclusion here, he's going to wrap up the, the, the main part of his body in, in the, of the book here in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And we've seen this theme come up throughout the book, the idea of suffering. Now, most of us probably remember, um, if you're, you know, maybe those who are a little bit younger than me, maybe not those of you who are here, but most of us in here probably remember what happened on January 28th, 1986. You may even remember where you were or what you, I remember being in school watching on TV as the Challenger was going to launch and, you know, everybody was watching because it was going to be the first time that a teacher was going to, to go into space. And we know that about 73 seconds in, we know the tragedy that happened, the worst possible thing could, could have happened. It did happen. What some people don't realize is that a year before, uh, there was an engineer, one of the head engineers at Morton Theokal, whatever, the, the place who was uh, creating the O-rings and was responsible for some of the rockets. This individual, Roger Boyce Jolie, he actually uh, had, they had noticed after one of the uh, other uh, space shuttles had come back and they had noticed in 1985 that there was some soot issues and there was some problems. And he actually wrote a memo to NASA telling them a year ahead of the, the Challenger explosion that the O-rings could fail in freezing temperatures. Now, in January of 86, the temperature that night was 18 degrees. And so all of that played in. In fact, he told them that the result could be a catastrophe of the highest order, the loss of human life. And yet NASA chose to disregard because of all of the, the money and the amounts of uh, investment that had been taken place in that. And so something that could have been averted potentially was disregarded. The, the early warning was given, and yet it was disregarded. And Peter is going to give us this, this advanced warning for our lives here in these verses. He doesn't want to see a catastrophe occur in our lives. In fact, as he's talking, he wants to help us prepare for suffering so that our faith is not threatened when difficulty arises. So he's going to give us some, some perspective. He's going to, to come back to a theme that we've talked about. I joked with Pastor Tony this week and said, I feel like I could just stand up here and say, okay, everything we've talked about, ditto, and let's have a good night and go. Because he's going, to, he's going to rehearse a little bit of the theme of suffering. He understands that our journey through life is going to be difficult at times. But we as believers have to find joy in this journey. And so as he, he walks us through these verses, he's, he's going to call us to be a little countercultural and even just a counter-personal. Counter because when we go through difficulties, our natural, my natural, and I'm thinking for most of us as humans, our natural response to suffering is not joy. It's a woe is me. It's a difficulty. It's a turning it inward and, and battling through and, and thinking through it. So as Peter comes to this, this verse, he starts in verse 12 and he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials, which is a trial, which is to try you. So he's going to be speaking here to believers. He's talking to the beloved. He's talking to us as fellow Christians. And he's looking and he's saying, 
do not, do not be surprised by this. Although he's spoken about it a number of times, the idea of suffering, Peter's going to give us a, a, another perspective on the idea of, of it. He's going to talk about that suffering has a purpose of testing. Suffering has a purpose of refining. That's what he talks about, that idea of the fiery trial, which is to try or to test you. The words that he uses, again, using that idea of the refiner's fire, the heat that gets turned up. And in the process of that heat being turned up, for us being put in the pressure cooker of life, facing the, the, the slander, facing the, the people who come against us because we live our lives as Christians, the, the heat gets turned up and we are tested. We are tried. And when we come forth, we come forth more pure. We come forth as gold because God has used those events in our lives to bring us to the point where we're more like he wants us to be. So our suffering then is not accidental, nor does suffering interfere with God's purpose. Peter is telling us that when we face these sufferings, God understands them. God knows them. God allows them to come into our lives. He's not caught off guard. He didn't go, oh, whoops, forgot about, forgot about art, you know. No, he's allowing some of those things to occur in our lives, and it's part of his purpose for our good, for our benefit. So he's using these trials to strengthen us, to make us into the character that he wants to develop within us. And so Peter says, when, when these fiery trials come, when you're facing them, don't look at them with disdain, but rather accept the fact that God is working, God is doing something, and God is doing that to build your character and mine. So suffering really is part of God's purpose for our lives. I remember when we first started this series, uh, Don Bishop came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, it's one of the things we don't like to talk about, but, but we as Christians are called to suffer. He's like, we don't, we don't like that part, but there is a reality that there is suffering that is going to occur in our lives. So he says, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. Christians, we are to expect suffering and we need to be ready for it. That's what Peter's saying. Hey, it's coming. It's going to be there. It's going to be present. Think it not strange means don't be astonished or don't be caught off guard or surprised by this. Like, oh, wow, I never thought I would suffer. Peter's like, no, I'm telling you, there is going to be some suffering. There is going to be some difficulty and hardship in your life as though some strange or unexpected thing just happened. Like, wow, I never thought this. Why would I face suffering? Never thought that would be the case. And yet Peter is saying, expect it. And when it comes, don't look and go, well, I never thought this was going to happen. Peter's saying there is going to be suffering in our lives. There is going to be difficulties and hardships. So if you don't expect suffering, then you can become overwhelmed and conclude that God does not love you and care for you. And I think that's where Peter was addressing to these New Testament believers. They were sort of caught off guard, like, why is this happening to us? We're, we're followers of Christ. We're doing our best. We're trying to live for him. Why is there suffering? And Peter's saying, expect it. Because if you don't expect it, then when the bad things happen, when the suffering happens, we could potentially come to that conclusion that says, well, God doesn't care about me. But what has Peter just told us? God does care about us. And that the suffering and the difficulties are for an intended purpose by God, for our good, for our benefit, for our testing, for our purifying, for our refining. And so Peter says, accept the suffering 
face up to the suffering, work through the suffering as you go. So don't be, don't be surprised by suffering. Rather, be ready for it. He's giving us that early warning, saying it's going to come. And even as we look at our society and we look at all the things around us, we see that there is a greater and greater potential for us to face suffering. We see it for our fellow believers around the world. And we know that as we look at our culture, we look at the direction that things are headed, we see the, the, the wokeness of our culture, and we see that as we stand for biblical truth, and as we stand for righteousness, there is a greater and greater potential for us to face the suffering that Peter's going to talk about here. And, and we should accept that. We should not be ashamed by that. We should not be caught off guard, but rather look and say, okay, this is going to come, and there's a reason that it's, it's going to come. Now, Peter says, do something different. Rather than be surprised by this, rather than be astonished, rather than look and go, I can't believe this is happening. He says, hey, when, when this comes, verse 13, rather than keep having that idea, he says, but rejoice. Find joy. Peter offers this counter proposal to the more traditional response of suffering. Instead of being shocked by trials, instead of being astonished by them, he says, when they come into our lives, rejoice. Be thankful that they're coming in, that God is working, that God is doing something. Rejoice. Find the joy in the journey through that, through that difficult time. Now, joy and suffering, it's not some trick of the mind where you just got to fool your mind into thinking, okay, I need to have joy. Rejoicing in pain has nothing to do with deriving pleasure from being mistreated. It's not looking and saying, all right, God, I'm, I'm, I'm aching and I have all these pains and you're allowing this to happen in my life, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna praise God because I'm hurting. He's not looking and just saying, just find joy in the, in the pain. Suffering, what it does, it puts us in a deeper fellowship with Christ because it starts to push us toward trusting in him, trusting in his wisdom, trusting in his care for our lives, rather than just simply just grinning and bearing it and saying, I'm just going to love Jesus and have, have a good smile on my face. But looking and saying, even through these hard times, God is doing something. God, and I'm going to trust his wisdom. Knowing that he is in control helps us to rejoice. Knowing that it is part of his sovereign purpose for this to come into our life, that he's using this to test us, that he's using, a, using the suffering, using the difficulties, the hardships, to, to purify or to refine us. Knowing that he's in control of this can help us to rejoice. So the fullness of joy really comes from that deep sense of God's presence in our life. It's not just telling myself, well, just have joy, just have joy. It's, okay, I'm going through the trial. I'm going through the suffering. I'm going through that hardship. And yet I know that God's in control. And there is a purpose for this. And I'm, God, I'm, I'm going to be seeking the purpose. And God, I'm going to trust your goodness. And I'm going to trust your judgment. And I'm going to trust your wisdom in this. And through that, we begin to find joy because we know that then God is loving us and he is working in us and he is caring for us. Joy occurs when our pain drives us to depend upon God. Whatever the hardship is, coming back to a dependence upon him. And Peter is saying, rejoice, and he's going to tell you why. He's going to bring us to who God is. He's going to talk about him being the faithful creator. He's going to talk about the power of the Spirit. He's going to talk about our relationship with Christ. Through this passage, we're going to see that, that Trinitarian aspect, which we'll talk about here in just a second. Now, what does he say? Why should we rejoice in the suffering? As we go to the passage, he says that 
but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. The word here that he uses for, for in the suffering, the suffering has this idea of we identify with Christ. When he talks about partakers, he's using the, he uses the word koinonia, which that's the word we use often for church, that we are, we are called out together and we have this shared fellowship with each other. And so Peter says that when you suffer, when you suffer correctly, which we'll talk about in a second, when you are suffering, when I am suffering, it is part of our identification with Christ. We share something in common with him. Peter's already talked about that. We've, we've looked at that back in chapters two and three, where the ultimate example of the one who suffers for doing righteous was Jesus Christ on the cross. So when we suffer, we suffer with Christ and we suffer for Christ. It doesn't bring any merit to Christ. It doesn't bring any merit to us, but it identifies us as a follower of Christ. When we are suffering for righteousness sake, we are suffering because of the name of Christ, because we are a Christian. It is identifying us with Jesus Christ. And we suffer on his behalf or for Christ. And so it's a, it's a neat aspect when we look at our suffering to say, wait, this isn't just because I'm a different person than them. It's because I am identifying with Jesus Christ. The world does not like that. And so then the world puts pressure upon me because I have chosen to live a life that identifies with Jesus Christ. So why should we rejoice? In suffering, we recognize that there is a greater joy in the future. We, we, we are partakers with Christ, but then we also see that there is this greater joy. Notice it says that you, uh, when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. The glory that shall be revealed, talking about Christ's second coming, when Christ comes again, when his ultimate glory is revealed, we are then there when our present joy turns into a super joy, if you would, an exceeding great joy. It happens when our pain is gone and we are in the presence of Christ. It may not, it, it's not gonna fully happen here. I'm, and I'm thankful that the greatest joy I can experience here in, in this world is not the greatest joy that I'll ever be able to experience. It's still corrupted by sin. Even in the most joyful times of our lives, it's still tainted by our sin and the curse. So that one day when we are ushered into the presence of God, the ultimate pain is gone. That we are now in his presence and we are able to rejoice with an exceeding great joy in our life. There's a quote that was, that was given by Thomas Schreiner. He's a, an author. He said this, What seems presently unjust and difficult to face can be turned into a celebration of joy when one understands that Jesus endured the same. But even that celebration of joy is nothing compared to the abundant joy that will be experienced when the glory of Christ is revealed. And that is our hope. That is what, what gets us through the suffering and the difficult times. Knowing that there is something far greater. Knowing that the joy that I can have in the midst of these sufferings, it pales in comparison to the joy that one day, when all the pain and the sorrow and the hurt and the turmoil and the sin is gone. When the struggles that I face in my life are gone and I'm ushered into the presence and my sin nature is no more and the curse is no longer upon my body and I am able to stand in the presence of our great God. 
knowing that it's, it's all gone. That's the joy we look forward to. That's the joy that we, we long for, and that drives us to live our lives for Christ. And yes, it will bring suffering. Yes, it will bring hardships, but it's worth it in the long run, in the end. Why should we rejoice? He goes on to say in verse 14, in suffering we learn that our great God has blessed us with all we need. Look what he says. He says, if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Why? Why can you be happy or the word is blessed? We'll, we'll come back to that in a second. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The Holy Spirit is resting upon us as we're there. He is there. So what encourages us as believers is that even when we're in trials, we know that the Spirit resting upon us covers. He guards. He guides. He is there. Christ, we, we know, John 4, uh, 15, 14, 15, where Christ talks about the comforter, the one who's going to come and in the hard times and in the trials, the tribulations of life. Christ says, I'm sending you this one because you're not going to be alone. And as believers, how do, we, how do we get through some of the hard times? We know that God has enabled us. God has strengthened us. He's given us his spirit to be able to work through that. And so it's a comfort to know that he's given us all we need to go through it. The spirit then refreshes us. He strengthens us at any moment, any trial, any struggle we're going through. We have the ability to go to God and to ask the spirit for help and for strength. And we can draw upon that spirit, especially in those moments of suffering, to know that he rests upon us. And so, so Peter looks and says, we can, we can rejoice in suffering because it identifies us with Christ. There's a far greater hope for the future and Christ has given us all we need. The Spirit rests upon us. The Spirit helps us to, to move through and to, to go forward. Now, he moves on in the passage as he goes on and he talks about it, the first part of verse 14. If you be reproached for the name of Christ... The word, the word reproached here is this idea of slander. Peter wants to take time to make sure we understand suffering and what he means. How, how do we understand it correctly? He says that there will be verbal insults. And that's what he's mainly talking about here. Yes, in, in, by the time 1 Peter is written, Nero is on the, on the throne of, of Rome. He is lighting you know, Christians on fire. So some think when it talks about the fiery trial, the Christians may have thought right about that, that, you know, the, the idea of becoming human torches in Nero's garden just blows your mind to think about. But the, the idea that he's, he's really driving at, Peter is not talking about that all of us are going to um, face that type of fiery trial. He sort of just keeps it a little bit, a bit vague to a, to a degree. He's talking about the idea of being slandered. Those who suffer are slandered here for the name of Christ. You are insulted because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. It comes up in 14 and 16. You are a, a reproached for the name of Christ. Verse 16, if any man suffer as a Christian, one of only three times that that term comes up in the New Testament, the term Christian, that you're, as a follower of Christ, you suffer, that you are reproached because of the name of Christ. So because we identify with Jesus Christ, and not just call ourselves a Christian, but a Christian who lives out and embodies Jesus Christ and his teachings and his expectations in our life. And as we live that out in this world, there will be times where we face slander. There will be times where we face the insults and the reviling. And Peter says, 
when you are insulted because of your allegiance, that's the type of suffering he's talking about. He says, when we are being insulted by human beings, we are literally being blessed by God. Verse 14, it's, it references really, I think Peter's referring back to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, where he talks about, blessed are you when you were reviled and persecuted for my name's sake. He says, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. The word happy there is makarios. It's the blessed. It's the, it's the beatitude. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5. So he's looking and saying, you are blessed by God when you are living righteously. And because you are living and identifying with Jesus Christ, you face slander, you face insult from the world. And so he looks and says, that's a blessing from, from God. And that is why we can joyfully accept the opportunity to share in Christ's suffering. To know that as we are going through life and we are facing the hardships because we are living a righteous life, we are identifying with Christ and standing for truth, biblical truth, not backing down. And yes, it is going to be countercultural. And yes, in the decades to come, we are going to face that more and more. But as we stand for truth, the insults will come. But Christ says, Peter says, God says, that's a blessed thing to be insulted for the name of Christ, to be reviled because you are standing up as a Christian in this world, living it out. Faithfulness to Christ then will produce suffering and persecution. That's a, that's a strong statement because some of us will look and say, well, we've never... I've never faced persecution. I've never faced that type of suffering. I've never faced slander or insult from somebody. Then the question that Peter, I think, would drive at, and I think he would ask is this, am I really living for Christ in this world? Because as I stand righteously, there becomes a stark contrast to this world. And so if we stand the way in allegiance to Christ, there will be people who will come again. It will be family members who want nothing to do with your gospel and they will throw insults back at you, but you continue to share it anyway. It's the coworker who you stand and you're not gonna do X, Y, and Z. And they look at you and they ridicule you because you stood in allegiance to Jesus Christ. It produces suffering when we faithfully live for Christ. So if we're not experiencing any of that, then the question that has to ask, am I too much like the world and less like Christ? Or am I more like Christ and less like the world? And so, so we look at that and say, okay, how faithful am I to Christ? Those who suffer, what does he go on? He goes on in verse 15 to say, suffer for right and not because of evil doing. Look in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. So he gives this contrast. He looks in verse 15, and that's where the, the, the word but gives you that contrast. Verse 15 says, if you're suffering because of, uh, verse 14, if you're suffering and being reproached and slandered because you're identifying in allegiance with Jesus Christ, great, blessed are you. But if you're suffering because you're a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a busybody, well, you're getting your just desserts. And, and the, words that he, the words that he uses here, and I think it's important for us to understand, not all suffering qualifies you and I for God's blessing or joyfulness. 
There is time that we face suffering because we brought it upon ourselves. There's no way around that. We, we do things that are sinful. We do things that are stupid. We do things that we look and go, why did I do that? And we bring the suffering upon ourselves and we deserve it. And yet God is still working in that. God is still refining us. He's using those pressures and those testings to make us more like him, to correct us, to bring us back in line. I don't like those ones. I don't like that suffering, but yet I bring that suffering into my life too much. He, he goes on, we know that we are still prone to sin. And thus the exhortation for us here is really to walk godly. To say, hey, if you're gonna suffer, and as a believer you are going to suffer, then don't suffer for doing sinful things. Suffer for living righteously, because then at least you know you're blessed by God and you have this future hope, and you know that you can rely upon the Spirit to, to strengthen you through that. He, he uses those, I mean, and some of them you're going to look at and go, well, I'm, I'm not a murderer. And yet we still have to remember, Christ talks about the hatred toward people. What's, what's my heart attitude? But the, the term there then, like when he goes on, uh, maybe not a thief. You might look, no, I'm, not, I'm not a thief. I'm not stealing anything. But he does talk about the evildoer. That's, that's the general wrongdoer. Somebody who's living, in, and it has an idea of a criminal activity. So maybe you're like, well, okay, Pastor, I'm still, not, I'm still not in the criminal activity. I'm not, you know, not part of the mob. I'm not part of the, you know, the, the Amish mafia in Lebanon County. It's not, it's not there. I'm not, I'm not a criminal. But look at the next one. That one, the next one, you know, we struggle with in Christian churches nowadays, don't we? Don't be a busybody in other men's matters. The word busybody is a meddler. Somebody who gets their nose into other people's stuff and then, you know, goes around, let me share your prayer request with you, Mike. I need to let you know about, you know, it's important that you pray. You know, and we, and we get into other people's lives. We meddle. We want to we fix everything for everybody else and we're, we're, we're getting in. And he talks about don't be, don't be that busybody. Don't be the meddler. Because what happens, what happens when I meddle into people's lives? What, what's the what's the potential that happens to me? It comes back on me, doesn't it? It comes, it comes after, like I, I get in the middle of that and then it doesn't go well and then they're mad at me and now they're suffering, they're slandering me, they're coming against me and guess what? I brought it upon myself, didn't I? I brought that upon myself. And so Peter's looking at us and saying, hey, if you're going to suffer, suffer for righteousness sake. Don't suffer for evil doing. Suffering for the name of Christ is acceptable. But for doing bad things, our suffering's deserved. And it's completely unacceptable. And when we, when we face that, then we accept, we accept the consequences, we accept the punishment, we move forward, and we know that God is correcting and God is working to still make us like him. So Peter, Peter reminds us, suffer, but suffer for doing right not for doing evil. Suffering is represented by God's judgment here. Look in verse 17 as he goes through. He's going to say, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it, it is first begin at us, what shall the end of them uh, be of them that obey not the gospel of God? So when he's talking about suffering here and God's judgment, he's saying God's judgment when he's talking about it, he's like suffering is going to start and it's going to be, begin with the house of God. It's not a punishment thing here. 
This is that purifying dynamic. Remember in the context, he's talking about testing. He's talking about purifying. He's talking about refining us. And so he looks and he says, it's going to start, begin at the house of God. So God is using suffering as a means of purifying his church. So as we are living righteously for God and God allows suffering to come into our lives, he's purifying us. Thus, he's purifying our church. And the the judgment, the, the suffering that begins, it begins here. It's not a sign of God's absence, but suffering is a sign of God's purifying presence. That the holy God is looking and saying, I want my people to be a spotless bride, not having spot, not having wrinkle. That I've pre- I'll present them that way, but I'm also going to be working to bring them into that position. So God is working in our lives to purify us. He's cleansing us. He cleanses those who obey the gospel. And he does that. So, and, he, and he uses the contrast. What should be the end of them that obey not the gospel? So as he talks here, he says, suffering really is for our own good. It is, there is a benefit to this. But what happens then to those who disobey the gospel? He, he sort of leaves it open. He doesn't, he doesn't really give you to that point, but we know that the end for those individuals is far worse. He's looking and saying, if you think the discipline, the suffering that we face as believers here in this world is bad, he's like, what do you think it's gonna be like for those who disobey the gospel? What kind of suffering? And, and we know theologically, don't we? The suffering, the eternal suffering that they will, they will face. So Peter, without even you know, going to the term hell, he draws us to that conclusion saying, think of how, how bad it's going to be for those who disobey the gospel. So let's, let's continue to, to live in that. It's a, the eternal suffering for their sins. So we, we get to the next verse, and as he keeps going, he's just sort of like working us through this. He says, and if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? And we have to start with that word scarcely. Because you, you read it and you're like, okay, what's he talking about? We're scarcely saved. Is this the idea of just saved by the skin of their teeth? The word actually means difficulty or with difficulty. And you say, well, was it difficult for salvation? It's not the idea of barely being pulled from the flames, but rather the idea that there is a cost and our salvation was not easy. This could be speaking about Christ's payment on the cross and it could even be talking about our suffering through life. I think it has a dynamic of both. Was, was Christ's death costly? Yes. Was it easy for him? No, it was difficult. Is it still for us as believers as we're saved and walking through life? Is there still difficulty? Is there great cost? Is there suffering that goes on? And it's hard, absolutely. And as our salvation, as we are working out our salvation and we are working through our sanctification, we're working through this and we see that there is some hardships. There is some difficulty. So he says there is with difficulty that, that we are saved. Why is salvation difficult? Some thoughts. The road to final salvation is still rough. I'm saved, but one day I will be glorified. I will, I will have my complete salvation. I, I don't experience all the dynamics of salvation. So that road in my life, there's still rough, a rough patch to it. There's still hardship. The way to salvation was, was costly and not easy. There are still severe trials that we may endure in our lives. There are still hardships and tribulations in the process of our growth as believers. 
Even the righteous feel the pain of God's judgment and discipline. So is in our, in our walk with Christ, in our salvation process, I'm not, I'm not working for my salvation, but I'm constantly going through my sanctification and my growth toward glorification one day. In all of that, am I still facing hardships? Absolutely. Will I still face judgment and discipline? Absolutely. But I would rather face it now as a child of God than to face the eternal judgment and discipline of one who has disobeyed the gospel. And so really, when we look at our discipline, when we look at our suffering, when we look at the judgment that happens to us as believers for doing it correctly, for living and identifying with Jesus Christ, for our allegiance to him, there is joy in it knowing that I am a child of God who is being disciplined by a loving father, that is a loving father is allowing this suffering potentially into my life to purify me, to make me more like he wants me to be because he is still working in my life. So it gives me that comfort, that joy, that satisfaction to know that even as God is working in my life and even as he's allowing those hardships in my life, I'm not going to experience the ultimate destruction, the ultimate suffering. Because he goes on in that verse, verse 18. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Do you notice that ending? Peter doesn't come right out and give you the end of the righteous or of the unrighteous. He doesn't look and say the fiery pit of hell. But we know that, and he implies that their judgment for those who disobey the gospel, who, who rebel and reject salvation, who reject obedience to the gospel, their judgment is going to be far greater. So he's using that perspective of the eternal hope the eternal salvation that we have and the eternal damnation that others have and the eternal suffering to look and say, the suffering in our lives is difficult. It's hard, but it pales in comparison to what it could be. So live for God. Live righteously for God in the midst. Suffering may be difficult now, but by being a Christian, you escape a far greater condemnation. So Peter uses this knowledge to draw his final conclusion in the passage. He goes down to to verse 19. He says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Suffering in God's will. I don't like that term. It drives me nuts because it's like, why does God want me to suffer? I don't want to suffer. I don't want to face that. And yet suffering in God's will brings us to a knowledge that we do not suffer because of irresistible forces of fate or some blind fate or something accidentally happened. Suffering in this world for righteousness sake, suffering for the name of Christ, suffering because of my allegiance to Jesus, brings me to a knowledge and an understanding that he is actively involved in our lives. It's not just some random willy-nilly thing that just happened. Knowledge, then, it gives us the knowledge that no suffering occurs apart from him. All of it passes through the filter of God. 
God is looking and saying, no matter what it is, when you are suffering for righteousness sake, God is allowing that. And that brings comfort to know that my God, who knows me, who knows what I can handle, has allowed those things into my life. It brings me to a knowledge that there is a limit in both intensity and duration, which is set and maintained by God. God will not allow you to bear up more than you can handle. He will provide for you the ways through temptation. He will provide for you the strength that you need to endure suffering. He allows you to work through it. And knowing that because he is a good God and has our best interest at heart, the purifying of our souls, the identifying of us to make us more into his image, as he's working through that in our lives, he's, he's only going to bring us to the point that he knows that we can handle. It might not be the point I think I can handle, but God knows my limits. God knows the intensity that I can handle. God knows how long I can handle it for. And some of you are looking and going, wow, God must think really highly of me because I'm like six years into this one. I'd really like it to be done right now. And yet God knows. And understanding that God is aware and God knows can bring us comfort in the midst of those hardships. Suffering in God's will. Knowledge, it brings us to a knowledge that that suffering is for our good. Remember, he is testing us. He is purifying. When we're suffering correctly, to purify us, to draw us, to, close, to make us closer to him. And it brings us to a knowledge that we are not alone. One of the hardest things when we, we suffer, when we go through those intense moments in our life, whether it's suffering for righteousness or even suffering because of the discipline of our wrong, we feel alone. We feel like there is no one else to turn to. And yet we get these verses where call unto me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things that you, don't know, you know not of. That knowing that Christ is in the midst, knowing that he is there to help us, knowing that the spirit is involved. Look, look at what it, we have here at the very end. It talks about doing well as unto the faithful creator, talking about God the Father. Knowing that the faithful creator is there. Earlier, we're told about the name of Christ. We're talked about that when we suffer, we are partakers of Christ's suffering. That Jesus Christ, we are, we are together with that in him. To know that in verse 14, the spirit is the filling sustainer. You have all members of the Godhead here. All members of the Trinity being involved in this. And God is looking and saying, in the midst of righteous suffering, you're not alone. The Spirit is there to sustain. Christ is there alongside of you, partaking, just like you partook with him. The God, the faithful creator, is there. He's present, and you need to live unto him. So when suffering strikes, believers are then told to entrust their lives to the faithful creator. He says, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit or entrust the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto the faithful creator. There is no better comfort than knowing you are in God's will while you're suffering. It's torture to be suffering and knowing that you're out of God's will because you're sinning. Because you're like verse 15, 16, where the evildoer is there and you suffer because you've done evil or your busy body, and you brought it upon yourselves. That's, it's torturous. 
because you know that you have inflicted that suffering upon yourself because of your sinful choices. And you want to get back in line. But when you and I seek to live in allegiance with Jesus Christ as a Christian, suffering for the name of Christ, there is no greater comfort than to know when that suffering is taking place and I can look at my life and go, God, I I believe I'm right with you. I don't know what you're doing right now, but help me to learn from this trial. Help me to learn from this suffering and help me to stand continually for righteousness sake. That's what he's, he's calling us to. His faithfulness means as the faithful creator, he will never abandon us in our time of need. God is faithful. So even when we don't feel that way, even when we feel as if we've been left alone, the faithfulness of God says he's there. We trust in him. We sing all these songs about trust. I am to entrust my soul to the faithful one. Even in the fiery trials, even in the hardship, when when Daniel steps into the fiery furnace, he's trusting that God will care. When, well, Daniel went in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace. The, same, same point. Um, they, they trust that God is with them. And we see that in the case of the fiery furnace, what does Nebuchadnezzar see? He sees God's with him. And in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our, our struggles, the faithful creator does not abandon his. We can be confident then that he will not allow us to suffer beyond our capacity, He will always provide the strength needed to endure. Therefore, what does he say? He says, because of God's faithfulness as the faithful creator, what are we supposed to do? We commit, we entrust our keeping of our souls in what? In well-doing, in goodness, in righteousness. So in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of that hardship and trial, the easy thing for us as humans to do is just the pressure comes upon us, the slander takes place, and it's easy for us to say, I can't handle it, I can't do it, so therefore I give in and I stop doing the righteousness. I stop living for Christ and we crumble under the pressure. And you wouldn't be the first Christian to do it and we won't be the last ones. But what Peter is telling us is saying, hey, when the suffering is going to come, Prepare yourself now. Be ready to stand, to do right, that when it happens, when the slander occurs, when the reviling takes place, you are going to commit yourself to the faithful one. To say, I'm going to do good even in the midst of my suffering. So some closing thoughts on the passage as we wrap it up. We should not be surprised if we suffer shame, and loss of status because of our faith. When we are living for Christ in a world that is anti-Christ, there will be times where we will be persecuted for the name of Christ. There will be times that we will face slander and reviling. Let's be prepared for that, having the right perspective, knowing that it is coming and being ready. We should then recognize that the suffering of our faith for our faith is a test of God. God is purifying us. God is refining us. God is using this for an opportunity for us to stand for him in allegiance with him and to declare the goodness of our great God, 
to declare the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So we should joyfully accept the opportunity to share in Christ's suffering. To look and to say, God, if it, if it occurs, I am prepared. Lord, help me to be joyful in the midst of it. And Lord, help me to be prepared to live righteously in the midst of my suffering. And Lord, help me to be prepared to, to be steadfastly dependent upon you. Help me to be prepared to rely upon the Spirit. Lord, help me to be prepared that I am identifying with Christ and that I am excited to, to suffer with him. So we look and we say we, we need to joyfully accept that. Spurgeon said this, and I, I, I like the quote. I thought it was a really good one. He said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. What a powerful statement. To kiss the waves that crash you into. He's, he says, there are, there are those moments. There are those times when the suffering of life throws you around, crashes us hard against the, 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 the rocks. But ultimately, when we're suffering for righteousness, those waves that are coming against us are smashing us into the rock of ages. The one who is steadfast and is faithful. The one who sustains us through all of those hardships. We should guard our behavior, even when we're facing suffering. And it's hard because we get emotional. It's hard because we start feeling terrible. It's hard because we find ourselves weak, physically, spiritually, emotionally. It's hard because we look at life and we, we see all the things happening around us and it seems to be going well for all the people who aren't standing for Christ. And we look and say, is it really worth it? And yet, Peter is calling us to allegiance with Christ. To suffer, there's going to be, don't suffer for doing evil suffer for good behavior. So it's a commitment to entrust ourselves to do good in those hardships. Our expression of trust in God during difficult times is seen by our commitment to do good. Even in the midst of the hard times. There's a, a, a lady by the name of Linus Sandell. Uh, she was born in Sweden, uh, 1830s. And in the midst of, in the midst of her growing up, she just, she loved her father, idolized her father. And actually her father was a, a preacher and she would travel with him and do ministry with him. And they were, they were on a ship. And as they were traveling on the ship, they were both out, the stories told of them being on the, 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 the ship deck. And they're just admiring God's beauty. They're admiring the, the stars. And something happened where the, the ship lurched hard and her father right in front of her was thrown overboard and the ship was going at such a speed in such a time that there was no ability to rescue her father and she she watched as her father drifted off into sea and drowned at sea and she talks about the the suffering the difficulty and how her faith was tested during those times and how people reviled her and said you 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 stand for christ and yet look what look what god did to your family look what god did to your father and how, how, can you, how can you stand and how can you commit to continue to follow this Savior? And, and she faced a lot of persecution. And in, in a time of, of just despair and thinking about it, she said she came to the conclusion that God was present and God did care. And she wrote, she wrote words that we're very familiar with, ones that, that we often sing. She wrote this, day by day and with each passing moment, 
Strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, as part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. And the song goes on to talk about the hardships and the getting through life day by day. And she came to that understanding that in the midst of suffering, she knew where she had to rest, to rest upon our faithful creator, to rest upon God. And she committed herself to doing good and wrote numbers of hymns. She was able to minister to many people because she chose to live righteously in the midst of suffering. And as we look at this passage and as Peter wraps it up for us here at chapter four, let's seek to do good. Let's seek to align ourselves in allegiance with Jesus Christ. And when suffering comes, to joyfully accept that, understanding the perspective of what God is doing in our lives, rather than becoming angry and frustrated by him, let's accept that suffering and let's live righteously in the midst of this world so that we can bring glory and honor to our faithful God. Father, we thank you for the time to just study, to understand more of your word, God. It's a a topic we've talked about a lot here in First Peter, Lord, with suffering. And God, I pray that you would help us when we face the suffering, when we face the hardships, when we face the difficulties, Lord, to gird ourselves up to you, to know that you are a rock, that you are the one that we can rest upon. We thank you for the Spirit's strength. We thank you for the Spirit's guidance. We thank you that you did not leave us alone, but you gave us that comforter. Lord, we thank you that we can be in a small way a partaker with Christ in his sufferings. Lord, we thank you ultimately for his suffering on our behalf so that we could have a way to escape that final judgment, Lord, and to be able to enter into your presence one day because of nothing we've done, but because of all that Christ has. So Lord, help us this week to live in allegiance with you. Help us to live up to our namesake of a Christian. For it's in your name we pray.